0: Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a very interesting show for you this week. Michael Washburn, our frequent contributor, will be here to discuss the latest effort to censor a work of culture. In this case, it is a scene or two from William Friedkin's film, The French Connection, the Oscar-winning movie of 1971, apparently not acceptable to the people who put out the Criterion channel. We're also going to talk to John Paul Gwynn about the new movie Transformers, Rise of the Beasts. Poor JP had to review that for us. And we're also going to talk to TV critic Matthew Ehrlich about The Idol, a new show from the creator of Euphoria on HBO Max. I guess it's called Max now. A show on Max. Uh, Matthew Ehrlich will be here to talk about that. We'll be right back to talk to Michael Washburn about censoring The French Connection after this uncensored musical interlude. What's my name, Popeye Doyle. If he doesn't like you, he'll take you apart, and it's all perfectly legal because Doyle fights dirty.
1: You want to take a ride, there, fat man?
0: And plays rough. Anybody
1: want a milkshake?
2: Doyle is bad news, but he's a good cop. We're
0: going now. We spend a lot of time on book and film globe and on this program discussing censorship of literature, particularly rewriting of classic literature in. Recent months, we've seen uh, sensitivity readers uh, change the works of Roald Dahl, Agatha Christie, Sir Ian Fleming, and and, and PG Wodehouse, and, and many others, uh, sort of from the classic British canon. And now, uh, that has extended to classic film as well. We were very surprised this week to see that there has been an edit to The French Connection, the 1971 Oscar-winning film from director William Friedkin, starring Gene Hackman as a as a New York narcotics detective, and uh, they have taken out some uh, offensive material. Let us say, Michael Washburn wrote about that for us this week on the side. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. Yeah. So, describe to me a little bit what what came out of The French Connection, and and who did this.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, really, just uh, seen of a few seconds. It's this scene where Popeye Doyle, the hard-boiled detective, is talking to a colleague. And in the course of the conversation, he uses a certain very offensive slur. And I don't know whether it was someone at Criterion Collection or Disney, which recently acquired Fox, and hence is now the owner of Criterion Collection, made the decision to pull the trigger on this material. But in the version that is now streaming, this quick segment is gone. So you don't hear Popeye Doyle uttering this slur.
0: It's the N-word, you know. We don't have to say the slur ourselves, but it's some version of a a slur on black people um, in the sort of New York City underworld in in the 1970s, basically.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, here's the thing, right? And as you pointed out in your piece, and I've seen it pointed out elsewhere, what... New York City cop in 1970 and 1971 wasn't going to use that term, right? Especially uh, as regards the kinds of people who Popeye Doyle deals with on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. It's It's just sociologically accurate, right?
3: It is sociologically accurate. And what you said brings to mind the controversy over James Joyce's Ulysses from 100 years ago. Was Joyce titillating readers or was he simply presenting the way that people in a certain milieu talk and conduct themselves? And Joyce went for realism and the makers of this film went for realism. I don't believe that they were being racist. I believe this is just how a hardball detective in a very corrupt, shady milieu with a lot of crime and violence and bitterness sometimes spoke. And it's unfortunate. But this, as you said, this is just realism.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate, but also, like, you know, there are plenty of other instances uh in films, especially from the 70s and 80s, when sort of the gloves were off in terms of uh the Hays Code at that point, right, where there was just stuff in the movies that um some of it was unintentionally, you know, racist or sexist or whatever. But, you know, in the case of The French Connection, which, you know, is widely and rightly considered to be one of the great American movies, um, you know, William Friedkin does not have a reputation as being a racist director. You know, this isn't gone with the wind, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the the people who were making movies in the 70s were pretty savvy about this sort of stuff.
3: Let's talk about these standards that are being applied retroactively. We see all kinds of things in movies. We see all kinds of things. And when the Death Star blows up a planet, We understand that this is not presented as an example for viewers. They're not encouraging you to go out and commit mass destruction. This is something very bad. And we we see all kinds of things in movies. It's understood that the purpose is not to set a moral example for viewers. But when it comes to anything having to do with race or gender or sexuality, suddenly something that we understand is bad cannot be presented because the kind of unspoken assumption here is that every single thing in the movie needs to be judged as if it's attempting to set an example for viewers, when that is obviously not the case.
0: It's a sort of a new Puritanism, right? Like Popeye Doyle, you know, is, is an antihero to say the least. I mean, he's not an evil cop, but he's also not a, he's also not a great cop. You know, he's got, a, you know, he, his uh, investigation in the French Connections has, French Connection has a lot of flaws, you know, and he's not that good really what he does he commits a lot of violence makes a lot of mistakes
3: mm-hmm. yes and commandeers someone's car if i'm remembering that scene correctly
0: <laughs> uh you do what you got to do to catch the bad guy and all you know that's one of the great chase scenes in movies but yeah your your point is is very apt right like the, we we are applying today's somewhat arbitrary standards the standards themselves are constantly shifting so it's like are we going to really like you know examine every film that uh and every piece of literature based on you know current morality which itself will date very badly
3: mm-hmm. well that's an important point and this question comes up all the time and in my article I gave a few examples of authors and works that would not survive under the current and ever shifting standards of what's acceptable but consider the question this way. I wonder what progressives would say about a book like Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Now, Hurston was a woman of color, and her book, her widely admired book, is partly about the evils of racism and the struggle to overcome racism. But she herself, in the course of this book, she uses the N-word a few times. Is she deserving of cancellation? I wonder how certain progressives would answer that question, because obviously she is presenting a social reality and she we know where her sympathies lie. We know how anti-racist she is. So what do you do about an author like this? And if you concede that Hurston was not being racist and that was not her purpose, well, then what do you say about other authors who were being sociologically realistic and presenting a, a certain milieu, a certain time and place in history?
0: Well, my argument would be, even if the author was deliberately being racist or on a, even unintentionally uh, displaying retrograde racial attitudes, you still shouldn't censor. You still shouldn't change. You know, you might you might uh, discuss the books in context. You might try to uh, discourage people from reading them. But you know, changing works of literature and film, uh, expunging, you know, erasing blackface episodes of television from, from the world, you know, this stuff happened, it existed and we need to look at it. We need to look at it critically. And it just, it's appalling to me that, that they're doing this. And, you know, I have to say, Michael, I'm like, especially disappointed that this is Criterion channel doing this because, you know, Criterion channel, I don't know if you're a subscriber or not, but I am. And it's widely considered to be sort of the, um, it's the revival house. It's the art house, uh, app, right? It is the preserver of Film literacy and film culture, and it's sort of the last bastion of 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 um you know the real cinema lover, right? And it's a place you can go and watch movies from all different eras, from all different points of view, from all different countries. And I feel I feel like it's a real disservice uh, to its viewers to have expunged even one scene from one movie.
3: Well, there's no way that such standards could ever be applied in a manner that is consistent and logical. And that's what people fail to understand. And they don't look at the implications of these actions. They don't look at what it suggests about any number of books or films. And it's totally illogical. It's out of control. And it, it has echoes of totalitarian regimes. And I, I find it deeply disturbing.
0: Yeah, I mean, it has, echo, it has echoes of, of censorship for sure. I mean, the thing about it being a regime is like, it's not like the government is ordering criterion channel to do this, it's just like it's just a sort of mindset, this mindset in the culture that we're going to clean it up. You know, we're going to clean up all these these sins of the past, and that's just not possible. And it's not, and, and it doesn't serve viewers. It doesn't serve readers. And it really, I don't, I don't understand who's interested, who you're trying to, what you're trying to prove. I mean, who's really watching The French Connection these days? You know, only like I watched it three or four years ago, uh, but you know, I'm. I'm a you know film dork, right? Like no one's sitting down to, cri- to critically view the French Connection and, and sort of glean contemporary racial attitudes from it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there we go. French Connection now censored on the Criterion channel. Uh, try to find, I'm sure the, the clips of the original scene are gonna surface. Um, you know, do a little compare, do a little contrast, break out your old uh, DVD. Uh, if you have one and uh you know and see what you think for yourself michael thank you so much for continuing to cover these issues for us
3: always a pleasure neil and have a great weekend
2: for centuries our kind has stayed hidden on earth
1: but darkness has found us again this is about the fate
2: of all living things. Unicron is coming.
0: It John Paul Gwynn has been covering what I like to call movie franchises that I don't spend a lot of time with, but are still very popular. He reviewed Fast X for us and was on this show talking to Scott Gold, and now uh, I have sentenced him to see Transformers Rise of the Beasts, which is our movie of the week and is in theaters now, and JP is here to talk about it. Hello. Hello. Yes, so... You know, you're. Uh, I, I like sending you to sort of these. Um, I wouldn't call them off brand franchises because these are you know multi billion dollar uh, cultural uh, products, but you know they're not. These are not what um, you know the, uh, the cognoscenti would be considered fine film going experiences. And you know, I I just I just found it I found it funny that you went back and tried to watch a lot of the Transformers movies. And there've been a ton there've of Transformers been. movies.
1: There've been seven. Like this is number seven. Yeah that includes Bumblebee, right? That includes Bumblebee. Yeah, so there's five main and uh there's, you know, Transformers 1 through 5 with all their various names and then the Bumblebee prequel and then this is another prequel that happens before the events of Transformers.
0: Yeah, I like the idea that like there you know, there were Transformers on the Earth before Transformers. You know, Bumblebee was an 80s car. And mm-hmm. now they're, the, the the current car is Mirage, and he's like a 90s car.
1: Well, Mirage is... I don't know. I don't think I know enough about cars. Uh, the Mirage is a Porsche. Looks oh. like it could have existed in the 80s or the 90s. Bumblebee's in the mix, too. You get some Bumblebee action there uh, in this one. Uh, I like the the idea. They're trapped on Earth, right? Mm. So they can't get back to their home planet. And they're always talking about how they're hiding, and that's partly their cars. So that's how the Autobots hide a lot of the place. And then you meet a new set of Transformers who are also hiding in another spot on Earth, but they look like large mechanical animals, and they're not really built to scale. Like the cheetah is about this size of a small condominium complex but how would they hide how 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 would, how would a condominium
0: sized cheetah hide anywhere on earth
1: a very kindly peruvian mountain village people have hidden them and mm. as the and the they they get their catchphrase out in the movie of saying there's more to these people than meets the eye and you oh, go ah. yeah
0: that's good. So so no one was questioning why, why there was a giant uh, mechanical gorilla living in in the Andes.
1: Apparently nobody noticed. Hmm.
0: Well, like I mean, seemed, why would you like really
1: in commuting distance of Cusco and and Machu Picchu, but you know, nobody noticed the oversized mechanical gorilla and oversized mechanical cheetah at all other than this small Peruvian village who they just, you know, the giant, the giant robot eagle, <laughs> right? Exactly. The giant yeah. robot eagle taking giant robot uh, dumps on the mountains. And...
0: Mm, uh, mechanic, <laughs> just just crapping out big cubes of metal, <laughs>
1: <laughs> or splats of of kind of oil or whatever. There is right. in the in the Bay movies. There is a lot of that kind of weird body humor with mm. the Transformers. There's not so much in this one. This one is a lot more. For kids, whereas the Michael Bay ones, I don't really know who they were for. Of the two that I saw,
0: right. Well, the thing you mentioned in this movie is you know there's not you know the the Michael Bay movies are all about. There's a lot of sh- slow motion walking shots of Megan Fox, and you know Mike, Michael Bay is not a is not a mature guy. The guy who directed this directed one of my my least favorite movies of recent years, Creed
1: Two. I liked Creed Two, all right. I know you didn't not care not. for it, but I, I did. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm not a, I'm not a Creed fan.
1: All right, but, but I guess the human, the main human
0: character in this, is played by Anthony Ramos, who um, is uh, was in the original uh, Broadway cast of Hamilton, and perhaps is more widely known to movie goers as the lead in the uh, recent adaptation of uh, In the Heights. Right. Right. That's yeah. His, that's sort of his breakout lead role. Uh, and you know, he I, I don't again, I didn't see this. I'm never going to see it. But he he looked like he uh, you know he can carry a movie in in, in
1: some to some extent, he's fine, he's good. I don't know if he's given that much to do that i i when i mean it's definitely takes skill to do what he's doing, but um none of the dialogue or anything in here is really uh anything that he hasn't handled before. The humans are almost an afterthought. they have pretty much two humans we are helping out the robots, and then there's robots fighting. Right, so really the point of the movie is that robots are fighting. That's a lot of it, yeah. This is not our war. Optimus, we must trust each other to protect the home we all share. How big can this guy be?
2: Uh, he eats planets. So, like, way bigger than a planet.
1: All the Transformers movies have Some kind of MacGuffin. in the first one it was the all spark in the second one it was the matrix of power which Mm. i wasn't really sure what it did but it did help do some kind of like robot cpr by jabbing them into the chest with the matrix of power but i don't think that was its main purpose here it's pretty easy to tell it's a it's called um oh my god i forgot what it's called it doesn't matter what it's called. It's a big intergalactic bridge that's basically like a like a like a dongle, um, and they're trying to keep this from some really bad planet-eating robots. Um, but they also want to get it so they can get back to their home planet. Mm-hmm. was um, the
0: transformers and- what's the home planet called the transformers home planet i was never like you said in your review like you were never you, you were never a fan of transformers growing up when you were a, a nine years old your favorite movie was goldfinger you right. know and and mine mine was like mine was airplane you know <laughs> right and yeah. and you had this line in your review said you know you had star wars figures but your made uh purpose was to alphabetize them
1: I really hated it when people got them out of alphabetical order. Yeah. It was not good for me. They didn't understand that it went it didn't go under A, it went under S for Skywalker, comma, Anakin. Uh, the other kids they just they had no respect for what was going on there. You does wait, does Chewbacca come before C three PO? No, C three PO comes before Chewbacca. because because it's yeah. like it's a letter right. and then numbers. All right, yeah,
0: all right. That 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 mystery solved. You know, this is obviously like there's certain there were certain kids who loved Transformers and who, yeah. lo- who they're the same kids who liked cars, right? They they liked the machines and they like and, and they understood the mythology and they dug it. And obviously, there's still a global audience for this stuff.
1: Right, it's. Um... I don't you know I don't think that it's really any kind of more lowbrow than than something like Fast and the Furious. It's a, it's robots. I had a fr- I have a friend that, that really really likes these movies. We were talking about this several years ago and I went, "Why do you like them?" I saw the first one and I didn't like it. "Why do you like them?" And he goes, "I like watching big robots beat each other up." And I went, "That's a great reason to like these movies.
0: That's their whole and- reason for existing."
1: <laughs> it's that i mean they do this one felt a lot more than the first two transformers movies the ones that i've actually seen this one felt a lot more close to what the identity of the cartoons was like and what the identity of the gi joe cartoons was like it was it was pretty cheesy it's not at like a level of um spider verse in terms of its creativity or anything like that it's a basic story they have a macguffin that they're chasing around that kind of um, gets all of the action going and brings all of the characters into one place so they can have these battles with each other. Um, the some of the rope, some of the, the the transformers are like kooky and fun in their own little ways. Um, like they'll have a an accent or you know like to dance or hang out and be rebellious and. Optimus Prime is like the big dad and stuff like that. And then they have all these like little morals throughout the thing. It's, it's, it's cheesy and it's basic, but you know, it's serviceable. Like if you had, if you had like a 10 year old uh, niece or nephew that you, that liked stuff like that, going to it and sitting through it, this is not painful. Whereas when I sat through Transformers Revenge of the Fallen last weekend, my God, I don't know who that was for. It had humor that was really, really adult, violence that was really, really adult, but also was just idiotic. All right, well, Transformers Rise of the Beast,
0: simple, but yet not idiotic, says uh, J.P. Gwynn. J.P., next week we're gonna um, send you to the art house. We're gonna send you to review Wes Anderson's Asteroid City,
1: uh, which I, I imagine is a little bit more in your wheelhouse. It's a lot more in my wheelhouse. I pretty much you know it's going to get a good review i would imagine
0: all right well i'll i'll also sit through it and uh, i probably won't give it a good review so we'll have we'll have a nice chat about <laughs> wes anderson uh and but but for now it's transformers rise of the beasts in theaters now JP, thanks so much thanks very much neil People are mourning the end of Succession on Max, which used to be HBO Max, which used to be HBO, and the loss of Succession has left a hole in the lives of people who enjoy what they consider to be quality television. Unfortunately, Max has filled that hole with a show called The Idol, which is a uh, a show about pop stardom uh, from Sam Levinson the creator of Euphoria, and it has all the sleaze of Euphoria. And then some, and Matthew Ehrlich, our expert in uh, in Euphoria and things related to HBO Max. And Max is here today to talk to me about it. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Neil. Yes, so you wrote about the idol uh, for the show, and you did not make it sound particularly uh, appealing to, I mean, I think people who like a certain kind of camp showgirl style camp. It sounds like it might be of some interest to them.
2: Yeah. I mean, it takes itself a little too seriously to be camp. Um, And I realize that the the whole point of camp is that something is taking itself too seriously, but it is. And maybe the problem is that expectations have been set up because it's essentially replacing succession. And so we are expecting um, a laser sharp look at the pop music world in the same vein that Succession looked at you know, media empires. Um, and with Succession, there were writers who did extensive research on um, rich people, media empires, the Murdochs, the Redstones, etc., and came up with a plot that really reflected that research. Um, in this case, I don't see any real research. There are fleeting references to the careers of you know there are aspects um this woman jocelyn she's the pop idol um and i think jocelyn is the most ridiculous mononym for a pop star i've ever seen on television before i mean why not call her stacy or agnes you know <laughs> ag <Agnes>. um <laughs> well, why not why not exactly use your last name honey um it's not you know i mean if you're madonna yeah you, you know call yourself madonna that's great um so they're clearly referencing t- they're referencing britney spears there's been a recent mental breakdown that she suffered they're referencing maybe demi lovato at some point a vanity fair reporter says to her um I really liked you and so, like I grew up watching you on this show called like Rock Camp or something like that. So there's an I, there's this idea that she was once a child star that has you know reinvented herself as this sexy pop star. Right
0: like Demi like um, Lovato, like Christina Aguilera, like Selena Gomez, exactly. et cetera, et cetera.
2: Right. But it doesn't beyond that, it doesn't seem to really have anything to say about the pop music world. It's snarky, and there's a lot of um you know, uh regressive sexuality uh to make it seem authentic. But it doesn't really um there isn't a really a sense of why this woman is um such a big pop star. She's I mean, and and Lily Rose Depp can sing, she can dance. Um but there's And she's beautiful. She's very, very beautiful, but she's almost like too beautiful. Like sometimes pop stars aren't necessarily model beautiful but they have like charisma in space like lady gaga Uh, right or madonna you know madonna was not ever really a great beauty she just kind of had this you know um you know ineffable quality to her so there's this and you know and Lily, lily rose depp looks fantastic i mean she really is um you know she looks like both of her parents um and she's good but she just doesn't have this like sense of you know uh nothing gravitas isn't the word it's just there's a sense when you're in the presence of someone who is incredibly famous and knows it there's an energy that they project she does not project that that kind of energy yeah. well, uh, and the
0: thing you point out in the piece that i i really glommed onto i guess because i'm i am in the media is the way it portrays the celebrity uh, media nexus, you know, they're all, she's done something. There's some indiscretion, right. In the opening episode that she's committed. Right.
2: right yeah. I don't remember. There's, there's, there's a, a photograph of her online with calm on her face, which may or may not be a self. Oh,
0: well, how, 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 uh, outré, um, but you know, it's like, yeah. but then they, so in order to do damage control, her publicist played by Dan Levy, creator of Schitt's Creek, uh, perhaps not picking his next project so carefully. Um, the whole solution is to bring in a reporter from Vanity Fair. And and to me, I mean, that's like...
2: Well, the reporter, no, the reporter from Vanity Fair just kind of shows up. And that's what's ridiculous is that, you know, when you do... When you are a pop star of that level and you agree to do a cover story, a profile, it's all managed by your profile. They tell the reporter when to show up. They show the reporter what they want her to see. And this reporter shows up to the house uninvited and everyone just kind of goes, Oh no, what a great reporter. What are <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, she doesn't really have that much power in the situation. She's just, you know, supposed to write a story and in return for being granted access, she's supposed to say something, you know, nice. Vanity Fair doesn't have that level of power anymore. And they really never, you know, they never really did. They always had to fight
3: for it. It was access. always managed.
0: But I look at Vanity Fair now as like, you know, off. that's a publication that instead of doing celebrity news, just like, offers hot takes on the supreme court or whatever. You know, it's not it's right and a lot of it is sourced from online stuff. It's like this is,
2: you know, this person's TikTok indicates that blah 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 blah. There's really not a lot of ground reporting anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so so it's so it's dated in that sense uh or you know and that seems to me that that could have been solved with just a little bit of a thought and care from the showrunner, right? Like the person, the people who are in charge of the writer's room or whatever, however shows like this are, are created now, should have stepped in and been like, this is inaccurate.
2: Yeah, or, you know, I mean, things are interesting when they actually have something to say that's accurate that no TV show has ever said before and this is not bringing that. And maybe, you know, that, you know, as I said initially, is it possible that this could be an entertaining show if we weren't thinking of it as a, as a replacement to succession?
0: Uh, Well, I'm not sure, but the one thing I I do want to discuss is the uh, involvement of The Weeknd, which was very controversial, uh, sort of before the show came out. And I'm wondering if that controversy is sort of uh, holds up uh, when you look at the weekend's performance and his sort of involvement in in the narrative here. Well, the interesting thing about The Weeknd is that yes, he is
2: it's interesting that he's involved because he is a pop music superstar on his own terms. But he's always been a different kind of pop music superstar in a sense that he has, you know, he started out as someone who released a lot of things online. He was really largely a creation of the internet. Um, and he was very often um, – there's a sense that he's not really present in his – like, he, unlike someone like uh, Bruno Mars or Drake, who, you know, they sing, they dance, they're, you know, they're very much their personalities. The weekend has always been this sort of withdrawn, shadowy, mysterious figure um, who has gotten some very strange plastic surgery and no one really knows a lot about, and his songs have a lot of drug references. So – he is and then the part that he plays on the show is he's a club owner who then, according to this hasn't happened yet, but according to advanced publicity, he's supposed to run a cult that she joins, uh like a pop music cult or something like that, and he's kind of like I guess they're you know the um he's supposed to be one of those sort of guru self help gurus who essentially guides her career. Uh, and maybe ruins her or something like that. And it's not very clear what kind of charisma he has that makes him have this sort of hold over her. Um, They meet at his club, and she's attracted to him, although he does not, even, even by the show's standards, he's not supposed to be attractive. Everyone is talking about how creepy he is, and he has this... The, the episode title is Rat Tales. He has a rat tail. He's sort of styled in this very creepy Coke dealer way. And yet she's intrigued and invites him over. And they have this very um, <laughs> finger quotes, steamy regressive sexual sex act thing, um, which, um, and there's one of these sort of, he he makes some sort of statement about how, Um, if you sing about sexuality, you have to know what it's like to be sexy, like Donna Summer. And therefore the idea is that by having sex with her, he is teaching her to be as sexy as the character she portrays in her songs. Like Donna Summer. Like Donna Summer, who, you know, if you know anything about Donna Summer, she actually was quite chaste, um, throughout her life. I mean, it was all an act. Um. So, and, and then she does seem to be very sexual already. It's not as though she's, you know, 14 year old Britney Spears in the Mickey Mouse club. She's clearly already experienced. Are you experienced some sort of sexuality or some sort of sexualization? Um, That's not a value judgment. That's not a, that's just, you know, it's like, it's, it's like he's introducing sex to her. And I'm like, I think
0: that's already happened. Yeah. All right. Well, my God, this sounds like a real mess. Uh, yeah. It does sound like it has the potential to be juicy, but uh, you know, I just I, and I like I like a, a nice sleazy juicy uh, you know pop show, you know, and I you know who doesn't love showgirls? But it doesn't sound like this has the um, this has the sort of uh, air quotes um, you know over the topness. It, it, and I watched some clips from it, and it just feels everything's just kind of like you know. Low key, the way they everything is expressed in its very low key, kind of boring way, you know. I, I, I like a little, it doesn't sound outrageous enough in a way, or it's
2: outrageous for the sense of being outrageous. But we've, there's so much outrageous television on, it's like, well, so what, you know, it's um, we live in the age of Twitter, um, you know, yeah show us something new
0: right well okay the idol is not something new we can't feel our face uh matthew ehrlich uh is he has written about it on the site and he braved his uh his friday morning to talk to me about it and uh thank you so much Matthew. we'll we'll, we'll catch you we'll give you something we'll give you something better to watch next time all right thanks matthew ehrlich the idol will be continuing for several months on max watch at your own risk also thank you to jp gwynn for sacrificing two hours of his life to go see transformers rise of the beasts for us and thanks to michael washburn for stopping by to discuss the censoring of the french connection i didn't think i'd be talking about that in 2023 i am neil pollack i am the editor-in-chief of book and film globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV, and we bring you a fresh podcast every week to cover what we have covered on the site. Thank you so much for reading. Thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you next week.